Welcome to InScope, the healthcare security podcast. Each episode, we bring you interviews, technical tips, and a unique point of view on the challenges facing the ever-changing healthcare ecosystem. Here's your host, Mike Murray. Welcome to this week's edition of InScope. I'm Mike Murray, as always. This week, we have a bit of a different episode, as we usually have all of our external experts. This week, I'm joined by a couple members of the Scope security team, because with all the stuff that's going on right now around ransomware, we wanted to talk a little bit about what we're seeing and uh, a little bit about threat intelligence, a little bit about how to detect the ransomware if you're a health system or... uh, up against it. And so I'm really lucky to be joined this week by our head of threat intelligence, John Daniele, and our head of AI and uh, all things security AI, Jeremy Richards. And we're going to talk about the things we're seeing at UHS, the things that are being in the news, and probably what's behind it. Some information about the threat actors themselves and about the tools and why this has been such a uh, challenge for healthcare. Just a quick note, If you haven't checked it out already, we also release a uh, white paper on the ransomware challenge that healthcare folks face. So uh, check it out on our LinkedIn and uh, on our website. But with that, I mean, there's a lot of healthcare news around uh, ransomware and attacks and breaches and the like. John, I'm going to throw to you first, and uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what we're seeing out there and what you think about it. It's been a pretty exciting uh, few months in cybersecurity and healthcare with the uh, attack against UHS uh, occupying the news cycle lately with rumors that the Ryuk malware was used at UHS. So that's uh, quite interesting. I had spent a couple of years looking at Ryuk and dealing with the Ryuk uh, threat actors, uh, felt that I had a keen understanding of how uh, the malware campaigns works and the different components. But after taking a look at what people are saying about UHS and Ryuk, I feel as if I know nothing about Ryuk all over again. There's so many new additions, uh, different uh, different kinds of uh, features that have been added. Seems like the same lateral movement technique, still using SMB and RDP to uh, to laterally move but definitely the inclusion of some additional techniques that I don't remember seeing before in, in previous Ryuk infections. And given the connected nature of hospital environments, I could only imagine how quickly Ryuk would move through a, a, an interconnected UHS environment. You know, When you have uh, the enterprise IT environment so intrinsically connected with the clinical technology environment, and EMR systems, when you factor all that together, it sounds like a really devastating kind of impact for a hospital to experience something like Ryuk. And the one thing that I don't think most people are keenly understanding when it comes to threat actors like you know Ryuk, uh, more advanced ones like Emotet and, and the, the folks that are using these kinds of uh, campaigns, you're ostensibly dealing with a live threat actor behind that platform. So although there's automation that's used in some of the initial stages of that attack, the attacker is also evaluating what they're getting from that system in that environment, and they're modifying their techniques accordingly. You know, if they wanted to pivot to a particular machine, they can download some additional module updates and pivot to those machines. If they wanted to use particular credentials, they have the ability to do that. It's fairly extensible 
as an overall platform. That's something that I don't think most victims of ransomware keenly understand. And, and certainly I've been in the room where threat assessments are being done to try to figure out what is the real risk to the organization? Because perhaps uh, perhaps we're not aware of any sensitive information that's been touched. You know, where our crown jewels are, that hasn't been encrypted. But what's not being factored into risk assessments is the ability for the threat actors to use something like Ryuk to pivot and maneuver at will. And I, I don't think that that's keenly being factored into um, to the equation. But I've seen uh, I've seen ransomware authors leverage that platform and maneuver through an environment, not in an automated fashion, but really making some key discernments in terms of you know where they go next, what's that next hop, what is it they're trying to exfiltrate from that machine, what are they looking for? You can clearly see the telltale signs of some intelligence behind some of those maneuvers, especially you know, days into the attack. And that intelligence is really a new evolution. You know, in the early days of ransomware, obviously it was a lot less intelligent. Jeremy, you have a lot of uh, insight onto how this has sort of evolved. Maybe you want to jump in and, and tell us a little bit about where, where did Rio come from? You know, where is this intelligence evolving from? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, hospitals and, and healthcare networks being compromised and, and shut down isn't, isn't brand new. Uh, Possibly one of the most notables back in the the WannaCry days, uh, back in 2017, 2018, when the British healthcare system wreaked havoc. So there was that problem. Uh, Not Petya hit some U.S. health systems uh, 2017, 2018, but it never felt kind of targeted. It kind of always felt like it, they were swept up in the whole uh, scanning, but. Recently, it feels like things are becoming targeted. So 2019, I I've just read a stat to prepare for this, but 2019, it was 764 healthcare providers were hit by ransomware in 2019. That's insane. I don't have, I don't have numbers for 2020, but I'm sure it's going to be higher. Uh, last year was a record year. 2020 has been pretty insane across the board. So I, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, things haven't gotten better in the ransomware game. And we've seen that, right? So we talked about putting this podcast together because of the last four weeks, right? There's September 15th, University Hospital of New Jersey hit with TrickBot and SunCrypt. And then five days later, what was it? The uh, Universal Health Services. September 18th was the University Hospital in uh, Dusseldorf, uh, Germany. So it's been like rapid succession. There's been four or five of them uh, kind of in a row uh, just in, in the last month. So, and, and and I've been kind of trying to figure out what tools that they're using, what's what's the most popular in the healthcare sector. And it's definitely looking like Ryuk for, for ransomware, uh, TrickBot still, for going laterally ac across the network and, and Emotet still is very popular. One of the uh, evolutions though that I found really interesting was the uh, the Conti ev evolution and what we saw with the uh, University Hospital in New Jersey where they're exfilling data. They're actually stealing the data before they encrypt and it's like a double extortion, it's a double whammy. And so they've actually leaked records. It's concerning that that uh, that's going to be a trend that develops. 
And so you mentioned, and and either of you can jump in on this. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pick who talks, but you mentioned Emotet, Trickbot, and Ryuk, and and those are names you hear a lot about, and they're usually you hear a lot about them together. Maybe explain to the audience and whoever wants to take it. Explain to the audience. Like, what is that relationship? Why are those things always heard together? Why, you know, and how do they play when you think about an infection? Rock, paper, scissors? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm happy to start. So to to compromise or, or to get the, the, the ransom uh, campaign started, there needs to be some kind of initial compromise. So either you're going to go in fishing, with, which is the emotet, or you're going to compromise something external. So the the recent attack in in Germany, it was a Citrix vulnerability. And then after you've got after you've compromised a single single host, you're looking to move laterally. So you need some uh, additional tooling around that, and that's typically going to be something like uh, Trickbot. They'll install Trickbot and they'll search the network. They'll look for the keys of the kingdom. Uh, they'll they'll look at what's operationally going to hurt if it comes grinding to a halt. And now apparently there's a, another step of data exfiltration where what's going to hurt if we leak. So they, they, they take their time, I imagine, to, to find this data, exfil the data, and then when they're ready, when they know that they've found the systems that are going to hurt, that's when they deploy the, the ransomware. That's when they deploy Ryuk. And uh, Ryuk's all about taking care of uh, encryption, making sure that, you know, files can't be recovered and then then they then they drop their ransom note uh, interestingly actually the attack in germany it was a university hospital that was compromised and shut down but the ransom note was to the university they had no idea that they had hit a hospital somehow and when they were contacted by the german police during the ransom negotiations when they found out they actually gave up the the encryption keys on the spot when they found out it was a hospital. So I thought that was kind of kind of interesting. But the ransom letter was addressed to the university, not to the hospital. Nice that the criminals had a conscience there. John, with that, and combining that with what you said about the intelligence behind it, you, when you think back to the olden days of you know, not Petya and, and that sort of ransomware, where it was all one step, does the complexity of multi-stages and the intelligence behind it make it harder to detect? I think certainly it, it makes uh, the attacks more sophisticated. It ensures that the attackers can be much more resilient as well. So at the end of the day, you might be able to detect an infection in one portion of the network environment and you've isolated those affected hosts. But because of the different components that go along with you know, more advanced versions, more modern versions of malware, they can, they can change what they're doing on the fly. So as a result, you might have found one technique that they're using and you swap that down, but then you missed perhaps one machine somewhere in the network and all of a sudden you have a new infection being spawned with a completely different attack technique that's being leveraged. So I think that's the the danger. And the way to think about this in, in terms of TrickBot, it's it's really, it's a module-based crimeware platform. So it's very extensible and it allows different kinds of updates to be downloaded and run. So different kinds of uh, modules. Emotet essentially was, was a module that was downloaded through the TrickBot Trojan. And uh, 
an Emotet reoc or essentially those module updates that were so related to uh, to to Trickbot in the in the initial stages of that threat group essentially leveraging the the platform. But these platforms, as I said, they're modular, they're very extensible, they can download different features and functionality. If they want to be able to gather certain credentials using a particular technique, uh, they can signal essentially to those infected endpoints, hey, we've got another update, download this, execute it, run it. If they wanted to get a more interactive shell on a box, I mean, these are all things that, that can be leveraged through the toolkit. Now, not every, not every victim is necessarily going to witness some of these advanced features and functionality. Sometimes it's just the basic features that, uh, that you'll see in an attack, but certainly in previous infections outside of healthcare, I've watched uh, Ryuk threat actors move through an environment laterally, and there seem to be much more intelligence behind their actions rather than just simply an automated set of actions that were that were being performed just according to to a particular script. Well, and now we're seeing them evolve even farther, right? You were mentioning that potentially we we might even be seeing them evolve their tool chains beyond Emotet TrickBot to include other sorts of tools. And and the the interesting interesting thing from where I sit is if you have human intelligence behind it and they can continually be modular, it become it's not like you're looking for a specific signature or a specific behavior pattern, but each attack could potentially be different, right? Well, certainly if you take a look at modern ransomware infections, there's increasingly a polymorphic aspect to it, which means that the initial dropper files that are downloaded and executed will have a completely different file signature each time it runs, or the malware components will have randomly generated attributes that can't be easily captured using a static detection rule. So, for example, crimeware dropper kits such as TrickBot or QBot, which commonly spawn second-stage malware payloads like Ryuk or Emotet that have been implicated in a number of the healthcare-targeted breaches that we've seen to date, will have polymorphic features that completely evade simple rules-based detection or signature-based detection. This means that you can't just get rid of it from your environment by looking for these static signatures related to those malware components that you found, because these components could also be wrapped in a polymorphic container with a completely different file signature associated with it. So next thing you know, you have infections across another segment of your environment because you fail to identify these polymorphic variants of the ransomware you're dealing with. So what this means is at the end of the day, organizations that face off against modern ransomware need to move away from static detection towards more dynamic approaches. They need to be focusing much more on the behaviors that the malware exhibits rather than focusing on, let's find this particular file signature. And that's essentially where we need to evolve our tactics and techniques from a blue team perspective. We need to look for the behaviors that the malware exhibits live and we'll have a better chance to detect that kind of threat activity. At some point, the malware needs to make certain library calls or modify registry keys in order to maintain persistence. So we need to look for these things and assess them and ask ourselves, is this indicative of a threat? 
And at the same time, we need security operators that know how to sift through data with a fine-tooth comb, inspect it with a magnifying glass. These are the kinds of approaches that modern blue teamers need to start using in order to catch up to and disrupt the activities of the modern bad guy. At the end of the day, organizations that are faced with modern ransomware, they need to move away from static detection and move much closer towards a dynamic approach. They need to be focusing much more on the behaviors that this malware exhibits rather than focusing on, you know, let's find this particular malware component because it has a certain signature. That's where we need to evolve our tactics and techniques from a blue team perspective. We need to look for the things, the behaviors, the signs, the symptoms that the malware exhibits live uh, and we'll have a better chance of being able to detect that activity. So an unauthorized change to a registry key. You know, if, if you know that you're not doing any significant update on a machine and, and there shouldn't be you know, massive numbers of registry keys changing or at least you know, 10 different locations at, at a condensed period of time, those are things that you might be able to look for to say, hey, we've got a machine where some new registry keys were, were created. We need to assess that. We need to look at that. Is is this indicative of a threat? Those are the kinds of questions that we need to begin to ask ourselves and look at things more with a, a magnifying glass and a fine-tooth comb, essentially, at the end of the day. Those are the tools that modern blue teamers need to use in order to catch up and disrupt the activities of, of the modern bad guys. There's no doubt that... Uh a compromised workstation is acting differently on a network, right? Like this host is is searching for other hosts. That's not normal activity. With NetFlow, with you know, being able to look at the traffic is a very different traffic from usual. And yes, there are different components that can be uh, loaded, but there's a kind of a playbook, right, for like doing this recon. After you've compromised a machine, dump all the browser passwords, right? That's lateral movement. Dump browser passwords and dump, dump local accounts. Look at all of the current connections. So you look at all the file shares that you're currently connected to and then start scanning for more. So if you're looking at the right logs uh, the right way, that kind of lateral exploration is... It, if you look at it the right way, it definitely filters to the top. So one of the challenges I think that, that healthcare has that other environments don't have, and we talk a lot about this inside a scope, is, is visibility onto the environment. You both just said something really interesting. You talked about, I'm looking for behaviors on a host. Well, how does that play when you're talking about a medical device or part of the EMR infrastructure where you're not looking at the behaviors on the host? Is there any way to contain this kind of infection if you're only looking at the IT environment? No, because it's not just the IT environment that's impacted, right? So what do you do? They still emit logs. They still emit behavioral characteristics and they're, and they're still attached to IT devices. So you get telemetry from them that you build behavior baseline uh, analytics on and, and you go from there and, and you do the same thing that you, that you would do with your traditional ITs. You, you know, you, you pull the logs from them uh, as well so that you can kind of 
you know, have that whole picture of, of what's happening. So let me, let me flip this to a different direction. What do you guys think is going to happen in the next couple of months, you know, in the next three to six months, how is this going to evolve? How's this going to increase? Uh, especially during the time of COVID people are talking about COVID coming back for the fall and the winter, you know, are healthcare organizations going to be resilient to this or is it, do you, you know, put your, pull out your, the first part of your crystal ball. Cause I'm going to ask you more in a second, but what do you guys see in the next six months? Is this better or worse? The same? Uh, maybe I'll, John, I'm looking at you. You get to be predicting first. I think we're at the cost of um, an increase in, in campaigns. Certainly, we've already seen that within the last several weeks. You know, we're, we're up to it. Uh, at, at least a number of hospitals that have, have been compromised in a condensed period of time. UHS is an example of a nationwide campaign. We hadn't really seen that before within healthcare, even though there have been some large-scale attacks against healthcare institutions. So I think that uh, I think the trend is definitely an upward trend. I think that as new threat actor groups realize that uh, there's a possibility of extracting value uh, and money from organizations that are focused on healthcare because there's there's special organizations in the sense that the infrastructure that they manage uh, is connected to clinical environments and you've got you know blood monitors and pax workstations and mris and all this sort of tools these tools and technologies that need to be online uh, need to be available and if they are not online and not available for any length of time that's that's a pretty critical situation to be in for a hospital. So a lot of hospitals have an incentive to just get back operational as quickly as possible. And I think what we're seeing right now is hospitals starting to pay those, those ransoms out. And I think that is going to create a bit of a dangerous situation because at the end of the day, the hospitals don't have much of a choice. They need to be back up and running ASAP. And the bad guys are starting to realize, hey, this is a reliable source of income because there is such a high threat environment. And I, I'm a little bit fearful as to where this, where this trend ends up. You know, do hospitals continue to pay or do they find other ways of, of recovering their businesses? And can those businesses even survive? It's, it's not as if you can recoup the amount of income during a certain period of time in which surgeries are, are, are kind of rescheduled and ambulances are diverted away from the hospitals that are being affected by these ransomware attacks. You know, in that sense, there's, there's a loss of revenue that's never gonna be recouped. So the, the impacts of these attacks are very different than what you would see with a financial institution that could always try to make up their numbers in the next quarter. It's not something that hospitals can do and so as a result, a ransomware attack against a hospital of a certain magnitude could spell the end of that hospital, you know, particularly in the United States. We saw that exact pattern in COVID when hospitals had to cancel elective surgeries. It's not like if I cancel a knee surgery this week, that next week the doctor can do two at a time. So you never get to come back from that. And I think a lot of people don't think about that when it comes to the hospital's operating model for its business, that 
everything is so time-based that if you, you're right, John, if you miss out on something, you don't get to make it up. And so there's such an urgency to be back online, to be back available. And there's, there's a perverse incentive, as you pointed out. If everyone pays the ransom, the ransomware actors make more money and then they do more of it because it's successful. If you don't pay the ransom as an individual hospital, however, you're holding out your patients suffer and your business suffers. So how do we balance this global versus local problem where globally, if we pay the ransoms, it's bad, but locally, if we don't pay the ransoms, it's bad. It's a really interesting challenge for the hospital uh, administrative staff and for the security leaders. So let me ask you guys a question. Let me flip this into a different direction. I just deputized both of you as the CISO of a health system. What do you do about it, guys? Jeremy, you want to start? Okay. Well, so is the situation I'm a CISO, I've been compromised, and I'm deciding whether or not I'm going to pay? No, no. I'm actually giving you the, you know, suppose you haven't been compromised yet. You get to go prepare. Yeah. What, what steps do you take? If you're one of our listeners, some one of the healthcare security folks that's tuned in listening today, you put yourself in their position. You know, how do you go prepare for this? So you've got a, a million point solutions to try and keep you safe. All that need to be monitored. Most of them probably aren't. So with most of these hospitals that are compromised, there's forensics work that's done, right? And they're able to kind of track some of the things uh, about what happened. But that's too late, right? <laughs> so. What I do is ongoing full-time forensics all the time on all of the logs that the forensics people would look at. That's a lot of work. Right. So I just go out and hire 500 SOC analysts to go through my one terabyte of data a day. Easy. <laughs> right? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know that's not easy, but I mean, that's. I guess that that's it. To prioritize the existing information that's in our environment to get early warnings to you know f find them in that maybe maybe in that lateral move phase so that we reduce it to a workstation that needs to be reimaged rather than paying uh, a massive ransom john what about you got any thoughts so certainly pre-preparation and planning you know at the end of the day time and attention needs to be invested in things like asset discovery and inventory management you know, know where your devices are, where they're deployed, understand what operating system, what patch revision you're on for any given device. These are things that are crucial bits and pieces of information to know about when an attack happens. Because at the end of the day, if you're involved in an incident response and you're dealing with an infected clinical workstation, you need to make a judgment call as an incident responder in terms of, you know, what are the potential impacts here, what could be affected, and knowing how that system is connected in with other systems, you know, what, what servers that workstation has access to, what credentials can be leveraged off that workstation to pivot elsewhere. This is all information that's really vital during an incident response, a live attack type scenario. And the more quickly the incident responders that are trying to help you as a hospital recover from that breach, can get to that information, the better that they can decide on courses of action that are appropriate for that given 
ransomware campaign or cybersecurity incident that, that you're dealing with. So understanding your systems, understanding the dependencies between systems, the patch revision numbers that they're at, these, this is all information that you can gather ahead of time and you can, you can manage it. Vulnerability scanning also factors in. Um, now in a healthcare setting, this is a little bit tricky as well because unless your clinical technology vendors have, have said, hey, it's safe to run an Nmap scan against this device, you don't want to do something that might actually cause that device to crash. And, and when it comes to OT, IoT, and, and, and clinical technology, certainly we've come across a number of instances where even doing soft probes of a piece of equipment can cause that equipment to fail. So understanding which devices can be scanned and how they can be scanned is important. One of the other techniques that I employ within sensitive environments like critical infrastructure environments and hospitals most certainly are critical infrastructure environments is passive vulnerability scanning. So if I can create a span port on a switch and start passively listening to the traffic that's going across a healthcare environment, I can get a sense for what operating systems are on that network segment. I can get perhaps a sense of even what what patches have been implemented or not implemented. I can get a sense of what ports might be accessible and open, what services are, are being transmitted across that uh, network environment, what kinds of clients are being used. And this is all information that's, that's useful at a time of an incident to decide on, you know, what's the best approach here? Can I isolate this clinical workstation that has been attacked with some kind of, you know, malware dropper. Is it okay for me to do that? Is this device currently in use? Is it connected to a patient? Can I isolate that device? Or if I isolate that device, do we not get any more telemetry from that device? From that device, And, and then all of a sudden, we've got a patient care issue. Those are the kinds of considerations that have to be made when doing incident response engagements against healthcare that are not the same kinds of decisions that you would have to make elsewhere. Uh, what I what I hear you saying, let me just see if I if I got this right. But specifically in healthcare, we we talk a lot about there being three environments, and what what I hear you guys saying is you need visibility. You need to be able to see all the stuff that's in your traditional IT environment, as well as the OT stuff, the you know the clinical technology, the medical devices, the packs, the the diagnostic equipment, all of those things, as well as, you know, if we're talking about, especially, and Jeremy, you mentioned this earlier, where people are now working on exfiltration before encryption, that brings your EMR environment into play in a way that perhaps, you know, you've, you've managed to avoid before. And I think that that's, those three environments are, are all, you know, often in the same room in a hospital. You know, it's not like a, a, a traditional ITOT environment where, you know, if you were BP, you would have your IT environment at headquarters and your oil rig that is your OT environment in healthcare. You could have one room with a, you know, a doctor's laptop, a medical device, and the connection back to your EMR uh, with an EMR workstation all in the same spot. And I think that that is something that we don't think about enough. So, all right, I end every interview of all the people with the same question, and I'm going to put it, put it out to both of you guys. Fast forward five years from now, 
And you can go pessimistic, you can go optimistic, you can go whichever way you want. How does this play out down the road? What is the future of, of attacks against healthcare? What's the future of ransomware? What's the future of hospitals becoming resilient to it? How do you see it? And uh, Jeremy, you get to, uh, I, I keep making you go first, but I'm going to make you go first on this one. Like fast forward down the road, where do we wow. end? Okay, Mike, we work together. You could have like prepped me and told me that you were going to, <laughs> all right. Um, I asked the hard questions, man. I don't know if I see it getting better. What, what was the time frame? Five years? Five years. Five years. I'm, I'm, I'm pushing it way out. And I know it's hard yeah. to predict sometimes that far ahead, but, but you're probably one of the best to, to make that prediction. Let our audience know what you think. I think things are moving in the right direction. I think that just like SCADA environments that kind of lagged a little bit because of the criticality of their networks, right? My network's different. I can't do that on my network uh, is kind of the common thing that you always get out of them. Like like John mentioned, you you nmap this box and it crashes. So I see in, in five years, and I, I know what's happening now. I know that the, the, you know, the FDA is working on getting devices to a point where they're, they're regulated and can be updated. Device manufacturers are getting better at that. So I'm going to put on my optimism hat and, and say that, you know, in, in five years, things will have improved that these environments over, uh, continued attacks will become more hardened. So. That's what I'm going with. That's what I hope. John, what about you? Sadly, I think I'm the eternal pessimist. <laughs> when I when I look at this environment, I see an initial lift and shift of EMR systems into a cloud environment without native integration. And I think that is a cause for some concern. I think we're going to see logs and other vital information stored on S3 buckets as EMR manufacturers or software designers start to uh, to move their infrastructure to the cloud. I think that credentials and tokens that are not being refreshed often enough are going to become a big issue with those EMR systems if they're not already with some of the few cloud EMRs that have been deployed in hospitals today. And I think that um, I think there's also going to be a, an interesting challenge as CISOs retire and the institutional knowledge that a CISO has about that given hospital institution disappears, unless they did a really, really good job in transferring knowledge and grooming the, the, the next CISO that, that takes a step up. I think there's going to be a period of time where we may see a repeat of old vulnerabilities in new modern environments, just simply because the next person who has assumed the position in a healthcare institution doesn't have the same institutional knowledge and is making risk decisions that are incorrect risk decisions for that hospital or for that institution. So I think that's also going to factor into play. I think we're going to see the quality of risk decisions within these organizations falter in the years ahead. And then hopefully we'll see it get back on track. But uh, but I do worry about certain CISOs that have been in the position for a long time in some of the largest hospitals. When they retire, 
I, I worry about how well the next iteration of security leaders in healthcare are going to do. Because I see a lot of hospitals that you know hire a CISO, make an investment, they're there for three or five years, but there's no succession planning. And I think that is the the number one reason why hospitals are are, are failing at security today. You know, uh, there's there's no continuation of that security strategy from one leader to the next. And I think just to add a little color on that, and we could talk for we could talk. That's a whole other conversation we could talk about. But they that far too often we bring in CISOs from outside of healthcare, and it takes them a long time to come up. So when those folks that have have learned those hard won lessons over those five, six, seven years retire, and you go bring in the CISO of a tech company or a a financial services firm into healthcare, they have to spend a lot of time. And it's, I mean, we've all, we've all done this. We didn't all start in healthcare. You have to learn a lot about healthcare to be good at this for healthcare. And I think there's a, there's definitely a big gap there. Guys, I really want to thank you for this. This is a really cool opportunity to do it with, to do these interviews with, uh, with folks on the team. And I know we're going to do some of these every once in a while, cause it's a, it's a blast and you guys are both brilliant. Thank you so much. Uh, to the audience, you can find all of us on uh, LinkedIn, hit Scope Security up on LinkedIn, hit Scope Security up on Twitter. We're Scope Security with an underscore on Twitter. And you can find Jeremy and John on Twitter and on LinkedIn and all the various normal places. So uh, please continue the conversation, ask us questions. And uh, one more time, we, we recently put out a paper on this. So please download the paper if you're interested in this topic. And thanks again. Thanks for joining us for this episode of InScope. To make sure you never miss an episode, hop on over to www.scopesecurity.com to sign up. Or you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And if you have ideas for topics, guests, or technical tips, please contact us at podcast at scopesecurity.com.